双负超过了百分之二十五。喂，黑黑人，黑人。This is what they felt like when it happened, and today, it's how we should feel too. Because what it meant for them, it means for us. Well, the outrageous claim of the gospel. Is that Jesus actually died, and he rose again from the dead, which is an amazing claim to make. The claim of the church is that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that three days later he rose again from the dead according to the scriptures, and that's why we're here today. There's lots of other things that the church gets to do. We get to help out in the community. We get to enjoy fellowship with one another. We get to hear the choir. We get to do lots of things. But the bottom line is this: we believe that Jesus physically died, and that He physically rose again from the dead, and that's the cornerstone of our faith. There's a man that once said that even if Jesus didn't actually physically Uh, rise from the dead. Even if it was just metaphorical, Christians would still be in a good position because they would have a good moral code to follow. Hogwash! <laughs> That's not true. That's not what the Apostle Paul says. The Apostle Paul says, "If Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead, then your faith is useless." So that's what we profess today. That's what we actually believe. But it's interesting that the initial responses to the resurrection were almost comical. If you go home today and read John chapter 20, and you read it properly, like I do, then you'll laugh a little bit. You'll have a bit of a chuckle because of some of the things that went on. The women, they go to prepare the body. They go to bring burial spices. They're the brave ones in the whole story. They're with Jesus all the way through the trial. They're with him at the cross, and they go early in the morning with the spices to his body. And what do they find? An empty tomb, and messengers that say he's not here. He's risen. And so the women go running back to the men, and they tell the story to the men. And the men go, "Nah, that can't be true, right?" It's almost comical. Mary sees Jesus in the garden, but she's so overcome with her grief that that she thinks he's the gardener that he's just tending the weeds. That's kind of comical too. Two disciples they're going on the road to Emmaus and they travel with a total stranger, and this guy is telling them all about Jesus from the Old Testament, and they didn't recognize him. He was right there. Even when Jesus shows up behind locked doors to the group of disciples meeting around the table, they're freaked out. 
because they think it's what? A ghost. What does Jesus have to do? Eat some fish to prove it's him and he's actually alive. My favorite part, though, is Peter and John. <clears throat> Peter and John, when they hear that the tomb is empty, what do they do? They get into a foot race, these two guys, right? Peter's the older one, John's the younger one, and they race to the tomb. John mentions, very importantly in John chapter 20, that he beat Peter to the tomb. In fact, it's so important to John that he mentions it twice. I think it has no theological significance whatsoever, apart from the fact that John wanted to show that he loved Jesus more, obviously, because he beat Peter to the tomb. But all these reactions and responses, it shows a degree of confusion and some uncertainty and some doubt, some excitement, some fear, a little bit of joy, maybe some panic. But it shows this amazing disruption that was brought to the disciples by the resurrection of Jesus. It's as if they had never experienced a dead guy coming back to life. Right? Like, honestly, I mean, they, they saw Lazarus and they saw some others, but this was new for them. This doesn't happen. They had no framework for this. They had no precedent, really, for this. They had no language for this. This was an experience that was beyond their knowledge. They reacted exactly as you and I might react if someone that we loved rose from the dead again. It would be hard to believe, wouldn't it? And I think their initial reactions really show just how authentic their witness is. They weren't camped out by the tomb going, hey, we're ready for this to happen. Just wait another couple of hours and boom, he's going to pop out of there. Just wait for him. No, it was unexpected. Even though Jesus told them again and again that this would happen, they still had no relational or experiential framework to expect this. And so it caught them off guard. But the big question now for them is what next? What next? They were expecting maybe the authorities were going to round them up and crucify them too. But now, Jesus was alive again. What next? But some of them, even after seeing the empty tomb, even after seeing Jesus, still had fear, still had some uncertainty. Peter, who we're going to talk about in a minute, he went fishing. I mean, he saw the empty tomb, and what did he say? I'm going fishing. He went back to what he knew. He wasn't sure what to do next, so he just did what he knew. Peter goes fishing along with some of the others. And it wasn't until Pentecost, the day when the Spirit is given, the day that Jesus says, I will give you my Spirit, and the Spirit will remind you of everything that I've taught you. It wasn't until Pentecost that they actually connected the dots. And it wasn't until Pentecost that they actually began to live out the confidence of the resurrection. It was the spirit that led them into all truth, and it was the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead that gave them resurrection confidence to go out into all the world. Basically, they figured this. If the spirit of God can raise up Jesus from the dead, then there's nothing that the authorities can do to us that matter. And they had this incredible confidence because of the resurrection of Jesus. But this new resurrection way of living, it didn't happen in a straight line. The disciples, if you follow them, they kind of zigzag. 
They fall back. They move forward. It's kind of like you and me, right? In our faith, our faith isn't a straight line to heaven. We've got a few bends along the way. We've got a a few U-turns, and we have to come back again. And the same thing happens with the disciples. There was lots for them to learn of this new resurrection way. And this is where we find Peter in the story that was read for us in Acts chapter 10. Peter's hanging out with a guy by the name of Simon the Tanner. This wasn't a tanning salon, right? He wasn't like a super tan guy that was buff hanging out by the beach. No, Tanner is the guy that kind of, he deals with animal skins, turning them into leather. And Simon, Peter, is hanging out with Simon the Tanner. And it becomes lunchtime, and Peter gets a little bit hungry. Maybe he got hungry because there's a lot of dead animals in the basement. He's wondering what's for dinner. But he gets hungry, so he goes up on the rooftop. And as he's on the rooftop, he has a vision. This is what happens when you get too hungry, right? And Peter's up there, and he has this vision. And in the vision, a sheet comes down from heaven, and it's got all kinds of animals on it. Some of the animals, Peter knows he can eat, according to Jewish law. And some of the animals, he knows he's not supposed to eat. And the sheet comes down from heaven. And Peter remembers the rule. What's the rule? Never go shopping when you're hungry. <laughs> right? No, Peter remembers other rules about who, what he's supposed to eat and what he's not supposed to eat. But then he hears this word. And the word says, arise, kill, and eat. And what does Peter do? He's like, this has got to be a test right? There's no way, there's no way I'm going to do this. In fact, Peter is the apostle that loves to say no to Jesus. Do you notice that? (laughs) If you go through the gospels, there's one time when Jesus says to his disciples, I need to go to Jerusalem. And Peter goes, no way over my dead body. You're not going there. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. (laughs) You're in the way. And then there's another time when, when Jesus is about to wash his disciples' feet, and he comes to Peter. And what does Peter say? No way, Lord, you're not washing my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you can't have any part of me. And Peter's like, well, wash all of me then. <laughs> and Jesus is like, whoa, dude, you're way too intense sometimes. <laughs> so that's Peter. He's constantly saying no to Jesus. And this time, he says no to Jesus again. But maybe he has good justification to say no, right? He says, no, Lord, I can't. I can't eat whatever I want off of the sheet that you've dropped down from heaven. And in the middle of dealing with that, three times that sheet comes down. Then he hears the Lord say to him, do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. Now, what's he talking about here? It becomes pretty obvious pretty quickly that the Lord is not talking about animals. This isn't the the, uh, premier passage for the hunters in the congregation. Arise, kill, and eat, right? That's not what it's about. It's not actually talking about the food that we eat. It becomes very clear, very quickly, that Jesus is talking about our human relationships. He's talking about who we accept and who we don't accept. He's talking about the people that we consider unclean and the people that Peter would have considered unclean. So, who's that? Who does Peter consider to be unclean? Well, technically, there's two people in the story. 
The first one we've already mentioned, Simon the Tanner. I mean, he was a nice guy and all. He gave hospitality to Peter, but he's in a profession that would have been considered unclean because he's dealing with dead animals all the time. And it would have been incredibly smelly. These tanners had to locate outside of the city or outside of the village, and they had to locate downwind, right? It was a smelly, disgusting kind of job. A lot of chemicals involved, a lot of things involved, and he was considered unclean. So that's one of the unclean people. Simon the Tanner was Jewish, but his profession made him unclean. But then there's another guy, and we haven't talked about him yet, but if you read the full story, you'll be introduced to a great guy named Cornelius. And Cornelius was a centurion. So he's part of the occupying forces in and around Jerusalem and Judea. But Cornelius is different. The passage says he's actually a God-fearing man. So Cornelius came into Judea, somehow was introduced to the God of Israel, and began to offer his life to the God of Israel as a God-fearing man. He actually gave alms to the poor, but he didn't become a full Jew. He wasn't fully converted, but still he was living a righteous life. And a lot of the Jewish people around would have admired him greatly because of what he did and his stand on so many different things. So here we have two unclean people, Simon the Tanner, Jewish, and yet unclean because of his profession. And Cornelius the centurion, who is actually a righteous man, but unclean, why? Because he's a Gentile. Those Gentile dogs, as Peter and his friends would like to call them. He's unclean because of that. And Peter could never go into Cornelius' house. He went into Simon's house, no problem. But he couldn't go into Cornelius' house because who knows? On Cornelius' plates, maybe he had bacon that morning, or maybe he had lobster for dinner, or whatever it was, he would have been disqualified from entering because those are things that you can't eat. So Cornelius was unclean. Here's, I think, the point of the comparison between these two things. Peter would rather share the table with an unclean Jewish man than share the table with a righteous Gentile. And that's the point that Jesus puts his finger on when he talks to Peter about the transformation that needs to happen in Peter's own heart. There's a deep prejudice that Peter still carried against Gentile people. There's a deep prejudice. He wasn't fully living the resurrection life. He was still holding on to this. There was still resurrection work to be done in Peter's heart. And I think that's a big part of the story. Well, this is a hugely pivotal moment in the gospel story, as we come to find out. As more and more non-Hebrew people, these Gentiles, began to follow Jesus, it created a crisis point for the early church, which was mostly Jewish. And the whole shift came from Jerusalem as the center point of the early Christian church to a place called Antioch. It'd be like saying today, good news, the Pope has moved from Vatican City to Las Vegas. That's what it'd be like. Antioch was a place where the Roman soldiers went to spend all their money and have a good time. It was that kind of party town, the most unlikely place for the gospel to actually take root. But this was the shift that was happening. In fact, the disciples of Jesus were first called Christians in Antioch, 
which is amazing, and that's what sets up the whole story. But this was the question that began to go back to the council in Jerusalem. The question was this, do these Gentile believers like Cornelius have to become a Jew before they become a Christian? That's the question. Do they have to go through the old covenant like we did? Do they have to be circumcised like we were before they can become a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ? What are the hoops that they have to jump through before they are included? Do they have to go through these practices? Peter's experience in this passage says, no, they do not, because he witnessed the very same thing that happened at Pentecost happening with the Gentile believers as well. So this was Peter's conclusion. Since God gave these Gentiles the same gift he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who am I to stand in God's way? I love that. Peter just finally decided to get out of the way. Sometimes we just need to get out of God's way and let him work. And that's what's happening with Peter. He's realizing, I just need to get out of the way. I can't deny what God is doing among the Gentiles. Surely they don't have to jump through all the hoops like we did in order to gain access to God. So this great question goes back to the Jerusalem Council, and you can read about it in Acts chapter 15. And a hugely pivotal decision is made by this council that affects every single one of us in this room today. It's why we're here today. The acceptance of the Gentiles into full fellowship with Israel in knowing God. And this is what happens. There's a bunch of Christian Pharisees who are still putting pressure on this young church, saying that these new Gentiles have to be circumcised before they come in. And so the council meets. And this council isn't a bunch of old guys sitting around. They aren't steeped in their church traditions because the church is like 50 days old, you know. It's not very old at all. But they're sitting there going, what do we do with this? And they come to this conclusion. You do not need to become Jewish first in order to have peace with God. That's the bottom line. In fact, and here's what's important. The resurrection opportunity and the standard for holy living is the same for everyone. It's the same for everyone. Both the Jews and the Gentiles experience peace with God directly through Jesus. That's the beauty of the resurrection way. And so they came to the conclusion, let's not make it difficult for these Gentile believers to be fully embraced into our community. Instead, we're going to embrace them and welcome them in, but remind them that there's still a standard of holy living that they are called to. And so they came up with four things. Don't eat food offered to idols or blood or meat strangle, from strangled animals, and you must abstain from sexual immorality. They actually pulled some of the relevant guidelines from Leviticus 17 and 18 and said, when you come in with us, there's still a standard that we're all called to as we embrace the resurrection fellowship. So the resurrection of Jesus disrupted their entire worldview and disrupted Peter's entire worldview. And he came to realize this. All were sinners, not just the Gentiles, right? He came to realize this, that all are saved through Jesus alone, not just those of the Hebrew tradition. And they came to realize that all are called together to live holy lives set apart to God in the power of the Spirit. 
All these are the same call that we all experience as we come into community. So in a sense, Acts chapter 10 is Peter's conversion story. This is part of the conversion of his heart. It's part of this this, uh, sanctification that happens as he lives the resurrection way. He begins to see the power of the resurrection transform his own heart, transform his attitude toward others, transform his prejudices so that he can embrace those around him. But it's interesting. Peter doesn't do it perfectly. If you read on a few more chapters, he actually withdraws from table fellowship with the Gentiles. And good old Paul has to come along and say, Peter, what are you doing, man? You're messing it up. Remember what happened back with Cornelius? That's the way forward. And that's so true of you and me today as well. As we live this resurrection way, sometimes we need one another to call us to account and keep us moving in the right direction. So here's my question as we reflect on this this morning. What resurrection work does God want to do on your heart today? Because even though we glory in the resurrection as being an event that has happened in the past, a very real thing that happened, the resurrection life is what we are living today. So what resurrection transformation is God wanting to do in your heart today? For Peter... The resurrected Jesus turns his prejudice into acceptance, right? For Thomas, the resurrected Jesus turns his doubt into confidence. For Mary, the resurrected Jesus turns her weeping into joy. For Paul, the resurrected Jesus turns his hatred into love. For the Ethiopian eunuch, the resurrected Jesus turns his exclusion into embrace. See, the transformation that comes because of the resurrection is the same transformation that God wants to do in our hearts today. And sometimes it's hard to believe it's possible. If you know your own heart, like I know my own heart, and I think of the things that need to be transformed, I sometimes wonder, how? How is this possible? Or maybe we have someone in our lives, someone that we've been praying for for years and years, and we wonder, how? How is God going to reach to them? Some of you know that Christine and I have only been here in Calgary for nine years. And I have to confess that this is the hardest time of year for me living in Alberta. I am a BC boy at heart. I have to confess that right off the top. And on the West Coast, it's greener sooner. I'll just lay it out there. And coming these last couple of months, I'm like, how? How is it ever going to turn green? How is the snow going to melt away? How are we going to see anything that resembles life again in this brown plateau that I'm looking out at? And then suddenly, it feels like overnight sometimes, all of a sudden the green up happens. And the tree in our backyard, this massive tree, buds come out. And I hear the birds singing like I did this morning watching the sunrise. And suddenly, the whole landscape comes back to life. I don't even know how it happens. It looks so impossible right now if you looked at our front lawn. It seems so impossible, but it comes back to life. And I think built into our environment around us is this constant reminder of the way that God does the impossible for us too. That even in the hardness, in the bitterness, in the cynicism, in the prejudice of our own hearts, God can work a miracle. 
And same with the hearts of the people around us. Peter, he thought it would be impossible for Cornelius to be considered clean. But all things are possible with God because Jesus is alive again. Romans chapter 8 and verses 11 is the verse I want to leave with you this morning. It says this, The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by this same Spirit living in you. What an incredible promise we have. I hope that you know Jesus this morning. I hope that you know the power of his resurrection as he continues to disrupt our lives and make something new. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the power of the resurrection. We thank you so much that your son died for our sins according to the scripture, but that he didn't stay dead, but that he rose again from the dead according to the scriptures. We thank you that we have that same promise. We hold that same hope because the very same spirit, your spirit, that raised your son from the dead lives in us. Help us, Father, to live in the resurrection away. Point out to us the things that need to be transformed in our hearts so that we might be made more and more into the image of your resurrected son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.